Hey everybody, this is Jim Boge, and you're listening to Music in My Shoes. That was Vic Thrill kicking off episode 12. As always, I'm thrilled to be here with you. Let's learn something new or remember something old. I'm driving the other day, and on the satellite radio, the song I Melt With You comes on. And that's still a good song. I mean, that's not a good song. That's a great song. That's a great song. Great song. They struck gold with that with that song and that recording. It's incredible. Yeah. The quality of that recording is fantastic. Great, great song. All these decades later, I hear it. Immediately, it takes me back to the movie Valley Girl. Of course. Okay. So, if you don't know about it, it's got a young Nicolas Cage, Deborah Foreman. And if you're not familiar with it, I'm going to break it down real quick, the movie Valley Girl. So, a valley girl is bored with her valley dude boyfriend... And dumps him. She meets a punk guy, falls for him, and the song I Melt With You, they play the whole song in its entirety as they're showing them dating and doing fun things together. It's, it's, a, it's called a montage. It was a very popular uh, device used in 80s movies. Yes, and I appreciate it. That's why you're here, Jimmy, yeah. so that when I can't think of the correct words, you're right there We're for good. me. Yeah, I like it. So she's having fun with them. You know, they're out all the time, hanging out, until her friends get in her head and basically tell her he's hurting her chances to become the class rep and the junior prom queen. Mm. So she dumps the punk guy, goes back with the valley dude, and then at the junior prom, as the king and queen are about to be announced, the two guys start fighting. Food fight breaks out. They sneak out, get into a limo. I melt with you starts all over again. And that is the story of the valley girl. And the punk guy. And I love that movie. And I could go home and watch it tonight. I've loved it since the first time I saw it. I absolutely love the soundtrack to the movie. Some of the songs they played multiple times. I remember the first song in the movie. It opens and then they play it. I guess, you know, when they're having like uh, a girl sleepover at one of the houses, they play it. They play... Um, a Million Miles Away by the Plimsolls. Yes, They play um, Girls Like Me was that opening song by Bonnie Hayes and the Wild Combo. I only know two songs by Bonnie Hayes. That song and Shelly's Boyfriend, which she sings later in the movie. Um, Love My Way by the Psychedelic Furs. We talked about that. We highlighted that in uh, episode three. Who Can It Be Now? Men at Work. We highlighted that in episode eight. She Talks to Me in Stereo by Gary Myrick. Great song. Love that. Million Miles Away. I could listen to that song all day, too. That's just one of those songs that is so catchy, and it just it has a feeling that makes you want to listen to it because you can understand what he's singing about. Yeah. Yeah, it was just uh, like emblematic of, of early 80s alternative to me, just like a really, really catchy song that didn't sound like everything else that was out there. No, and it's one of those songs, we've talked about it before, that I think could come out today and it could do pretty good. Yeah. You know? Eyes of a Stranger by the Paolas. Do you remember that song? I do. That, that's a good one. He Could Be the One by Josie Cotton. Uh, and probably one of my favorite songs that I had never heard until the movie, Eaten by the Monster of Love by Sparks. Didn't know that song at all. 
That's a really good song. If you haven't listened to it, I'll say it one more time. Eaten by the Monster of Love by Sparks. Great song. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I Melt With You. And there's a couple jam songs in there, too. Town Called Malice. There are. They actually, um, for those of you that don't know, you can't just make a movie and then just put music in it. You have to pay licensing fees and get the rights to be able to do it. And if I'm thinking correctly off the top of my head, they spent about $250,000 on the rights, and they couldn't get all the rights to every song to put out on a soundtrack. So Uh, some songs actually are listed that they're in the movie that never were. They had to take them out and replace them with some of the songs that we just talked about. Oh. The budget for the film, I'm pretty sure, is about $350,000. And then you look at the soundtrack, you know, the rights for the the songs, $250,000. It was absolutely insane to be able to do that. But a really good movie. A couple of lines that I still remember. That chick, Julie, is truly dazzling. Or the the part where they go to the movie theater and the guy's like the, the valley dude doesn't realize that the punk guy's in disguise working at the movie theater. And he goes, is this movie in 3D? And he's like, no, but your face is. <laughs> I, I still find that funny all these years later. I really, really do. I know they made a, a remake of it recently. I've not seen it. Oh, not, I didn't know they made a remake. Not sure anything about it. But this is a classic. This came out in 1983. So the junior prom would have been in 83. That means that they would have actually had their senior prom in 1984 if it was the real world, which in my real world, my senior prom was in 1984. All right. You were prime, you know, target then for the Valley Girl movie. Yeah, I was. Me and my friends were the people that they wanted to, to, you know, go after. There's actually a scene in the movie where they have a party at... um, one of the girls' houses, and it actually reminds me kind of a party that I was at back in the day with the music playing and, you know, a ton of kids hanging out, and it definitely takes me back. I remember them, like, driving through the Hollywood Hills in that movie in a convertible or something. Yes, they would do that. A couple of times they did it when Nicolas Cage playing Randy and his uh, friend Fred, Deborah Foreman as... Julie and her friend Stacy, they'll go up to the hills like you talked about. And then in another part of the movie where I guess he gets beat up at a party, thrown out, they stop at that same kind of location, kind of talk about, you know, no one's going to tell me what to do. We're going back type of thing. That was a very nice looking car, by the way. What, What was the car? I don't know, but it was a real nice convertible. I do remember that. Uh, I do remember them when they, you know, went into uh, to Hollywood and they were going to the club where the Plimsolls were playing. Stacy didn't want to get out of the car. And Randy says, okay, but when they storm the car, save the radio. <laughs> so I do remember, you know, and I'm not sure if it's word for word like that, but basically yeah. that's the thing. So Valley Girl definitely is a movie that I still like. Learned a lot of good songs from there that I still listen to today. So we appreciate all the comments and the feedback that we receive. So let's go to the Music in My Shoes mailbag. Well, that was pretty good, Jimmy. Thank you. 
Wow, you whipped that up pretty quick there. I did, I did. I like it. I like a little theme music going there for the music in my shoes mailbag. We're going to start off with Sue Ann from New York. She says, I like Jimmy mentioning the 96 rock card. I remember WAPP issuing cards when the station was new. I'm remembering something old again. I think that's cool that she's remembering something old again. Okay. And as long as something old is 96 rock card and not me. Yes, yeah. okay, yes, okay, it okay. is the card. We're good. So WAPP was a station that had started in New York, and the first summer they were commercial free. They wanted to, you know, take some of the listeners from some of the other stations, and they actually would send um, like postcards to you where you could write songs that you wanted to hear and mail it back, thinking that hey, I'm voting on songs. You know, they probably just threw them away. You know. Who cares what the average person is? They just want you to think that you're part of it. But it was really cool that they were commercial-free for so long. It was really enjoyable. When they started playing commercials, they were just like everybody else. No different at that point. Yeah. So let's move to Jim in Cumming, Georgia. Good episode. He's talking about our last episode. Good episode. Had forgotten about some of the songs mentioned in the WLIR WDRE countdown. The first Led Zeppelin record is one of the best albums. He also mentioned that he liked that we could take WLIR music and Led Zeppelin and morph it all into one episode. So thank you, Jim, for listening. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Next up, Randy from New York. His comment is, this is the first time I paused the podcast to mention something. Your podcast partner absolutely has to know the song The Promise by When in Rome. <laughs> I'm thinking the title and the group just didn't click at the moment. No, it didn't click at the moment. I, I know that song. From my daughter, Jessica in Texas, does Jimmy really not know When in Rome? Yeah, sorry. I, it just, I, I never knew the title of that song. I, I heard it a million times. Well, that's good to know. I think that our listeners will feel much better knowing that you know that song because that is a good song. I like it still all these years later. It's one of those songs, stands the test of time. We've talked about songs like that before. Real good song. I'm glad you know it, and I'm glad that our listeners are probably relieved knowing that you know it. I'm so glad that's behind us now. Yeah, we can all sleep well. You know what? I bet we're going to get comments saying they slept much better. I bet we are. Me too. Music in my shoes, mailbag. So New Moon on Monday, Duran Duran. All right, single was released January 23rd, 1984, from the 1983 Seven and the Ragged Tiger album. Previous single, first single they released was Union of the Snake. That had come out in, in 1983. And then later on, in April of 84, they released The Reflex, which was the first number one single for Duran Duran on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in the U.S. So that was definitely a different uh, take for Duran Duran. They seemed to go in a little bit of a different direction. The songs seemed to be much different. You know, I think their first couple albums and songs were all about girls and... (laughs) Girls on film right. and r- girls in Rio. Rio, you know, and, you know, if you watch the videos. But I think that this was, you know, them maturing a little bit and doing some different things. Now, I remember when Union of the Snake first came out, 
I wasn't thrilled with it because I do like Duran Duran a lot, and it was very different. But it's funny because today I wish an album like Seven and the Ragged Tiger or a song like New Moon on Monday or The Reflex would come out because now I really like those songs because I don't hear them anymore. Does yeah. that kind of make sense? Mm-hmm. New Moon on Monday, it was good. The video was okay. But that Reflex song, that seemed to be played everywhere, whether it was on Top 40 radio, on WLIR, which you know I was listening to. Every time you turned around, you would hear that song. I remember the Reflex music video. Wasn't there like a, a waterfall or a tidal wave, almost like it was breaking through the video screen, or is that just completely in my imagination? I can't remember the video. All right, we're going to leave that to the listeners to correct me if that's wrong. They can. I don't remember the video. Um, and that's funny. We had bad plumbing in my house, so it's possible that I'm just conflating the two. So do you think that you were watching it on TV and then all of a sudden you like had a, a three, flood? It was like a Three Stooges situation where they hooked up the, the pipes to the TV and, yeah, I don't know, something might have happened like that. I'm glad that I didn't live with you. <laughs> me too. Wow, that that's that's pretty uh, amazing. Duran uh, Duran. One of the things about Duran Duran, Simon LeBon today, his voice is still like a plus. He really can still sing, and not a lot of men are able to do that as they get older, especially when your voice is hitting some of those high notes. Yeah, he really, really, you know, impressive that he can do that all these years later. And he's still a good-looking dude. I'm jealous. I'm going to be honest with you. I'll tell you that right here. Any mm-hmm. day, I'll tell anybody that. I don't have any hair. Oh, sure you do. <laughs> so, Jimmy. Yeah. The Romantics, Talking in Your Sleep. It rose to number three on the Billboard Top 100 Songs chart on January 28th, 1984. I hear the secrets that you keep when you're talking in your sleep. Right. Does that ring a bell? Of course. I I loved the Romantics. Romantics, real good band. I have to be honest. In the video, if you watch the video, the band isn't in it at first, but then they kind of, like their heads kind of like pop up in the video. And it reminds me of a 1980s version of the Sweat Hogs from Welcome Back, (laughs) Cotta, if you watch it. All right, I've got to watch this now. It really does. And I know for all of you out there, I have always struggled saying welcome back, Cotter. It's a struggle for me. I always want to say welcome back, Carter, but it is not that. It is K-O-T-T-E-R. So one more time for all of you, because I know you're saying, what did he say? Welcome back, Cotter. So uh, a quick aside on welcome back, Cotter. I watched one of those VH1 shows about it years ago because mm-hmm. I loved uh, I loved Welcome Back, Cotter when I was a kid. And when they casted for Vinny Barbarino, so one of the producers found Robert Hedges that played Epstein. Another guy found John Travolta. It was Gabe Kaplan, the you know guy mm-hmm. that played Cotter, that found Travolta. And they both called each other and said, I found our Vinny Barbarino. And he's like, no, I found Vinny Barbarino. Make the other guy Epstein. And that's how they got Epstein. And then the other factoid about Welcome Back, Cotter, is it was just going to be called Cotter. And 
then they had John Sebastian write a theme song for him, and he wrote this incredible song, Welcome Back. And they were like, well, that doesn't, it doesn't say Cotter anywhere, does it, you know? So they changed the name of the show at the last minute, like a few weeks before it aired, to Welcome Back Cotter. And for those of you that don't know, John Sebastian was in The Love and Spoonful. Good singer, great um, lyricist. He wrote songs for other bands. Love and Spoonful was a real good band. I love Jimmy when we have these conversations and we start with one thing and then we just go from here to there. It's kind of like a pinball thing going on. And I, I absolutely love when that happens. I haven't seen Welcome Back, Cotter in a long time. I have seen... Uh, Saturday Night Fever with John Travolta. Mm -hmm. But when you get a chance, check out the video and tell me if you think that it looks like an 80s version of the Sweat Hogs. Oh, I forgot that's how we got onto it. Yeah, okay. Yes, an 80s version of the Sweat Hogs coming up. Last thing about that is that Kaplan's vision for the Sweat Hogs was that they would be a modern-day Marx Brothers at the time. Really? Yeah. So in a way, the Talking Your Sleep video was like the Marx Brothers popping up. It could be. You know. And you know what? There's not a whole lot of difference between Vinnie Barbarino and the character that he plays in Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> no, no, there wasn't. Yeah. Or Grease. No, not at all. <laughs> no, it's not a lot of range. So let's move on. Rockwell, Somebody's Watching Me. All right? It enters the Billboard Top 100 songs on January 28th. So the same day that the Romantics hit number three on the Top 100, Rockwell enters the top 100, and it peaked at number two in March of 84. So starts off kind of like a Halloween sounding like with a creepy little synthesizer thing going on, and the words are all about paranoia. I always feel like somebody's watching me, and that's the, you know, the chorus. And you're like, the words sound like, no, it couldn't be, but yes, singing that chorus is Michael Jackson. So times were different back then. You couldn't just sing or play on another person's song or an album without permission and, you know, detailed contracts on how it was going to all work because everybody had to get their cut. But today it's a different story. I mean, people release stuff with people guesting all the time. Very, very different. Episode three, we spoke about Michael Jackson's Beat It with Eddie Van Halen on guitar, and it was the same thing. You couldn't look things up because there wasn't internet back in the day. You kind of were like, I think it's him. I don't know that it's him. And there wasn't anything written down that that it is him. And it was a lot of guessing. And The uh, DJ had to tell you. The DJ had to tell you. We've talked about that before where you got your information from the DJ. And you didn't know stuff the way you do today. You you can find things out instantly today. Very, very different. You know what the DJ didn't tell us back then about Rockwell? Do you know who Rockwell was? Like, I always wondered, how did this one-hit wonder get Michael Jackson to sing on his song? It's funny that you say that. He was Barry Gordy's son. Yes, exactly. But he did not want to use the name because he didn't want people to think that's why he was there. So who's Barry Gordy? Jimmy, who's Barry Gordy? He's the one that started Motown Records, right? That is correct. Among many other things. Yeah, I mean... Great producer. He was a producer. He wrote songs. He did a ton of stuff. I mean, the guy definitely had a a magic uh, hand, a magic brain. He just knew talent when he saw it. He 
um, knew Michael Jackson, and and Rockwell grew up knowing Michael Jackson. So it kind of became like, hey, Michael, will you sing on this record for me? And that's really how the whole thing came together. It's a good song. I find myself, every Halloween, I have a playlist that I play. As all the trick-or-treaters are coming to my house, it's on there, along with Thriller. It's on mine, too. It's on mine, too. I got Thriller. Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. Uh, Monster Mash. So after the breakup of the English Beat in 1983, the two main members, Dave Wakeling and Ranking Roger, formed a new band called General Public. And they released their debut album, All the Rage, January 20th, 1984. First single was General Public, which is a good song. I liked it. I enjoyed it. It was definitely different from some of the music that was being played on the radio at the time. But then they followed it up with Tenderness. All right? Catchy pop song with guitar by none other than ex-Clash member Mick Jones. Wow. Yes. He'd been recently uh, kicked out of the Clash, and he joined General Public, but left after recording only a few of the songs. I think one of the reasons the song got so popular... Now, I think it's a good song. I really enjoy it. I still like it today. But... It's featured in 16 Candles and Weird Science. And if you can feature a song in two movies of that stature at the time, mm-hmm. it's going to become popular. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, I want to say it was in uh, Clueless that came out, you know, mid-90s, maybe 95 or so. I think it was in that uh, movie as well. So some of the other songs from the album, Hot You're Cool, Mick Jones played on that. Never You Done That. I think he played guitar in that song. And as a matter of fact, which is uh, one of the songs that Ranking Roger took lead vocals on. But it's a real good album. If you like the English beat, there's a lot of similarities, but then there's some differences. It's more rock and roll than what the English beat is. The English beat was more of a ska, you know, Jamaican-influenced kind of rock, whereas when you listen to general public, it was more of a straight-up rock with some, you know, flavors of different types that's of music. Not, that's not the way I characterize it, but you know what, Jim? Music is not a competition. It's not? Hey, how do you categorize it? Uh, mm, you don't want me to say. I don't know. I don't like general public. Oh, I didn't think that you did. Yeah. So it's an OMD situation. I haven't heard the, the song that I like yet, though. I did hear an OMD song that I like, but I, uh, general public. It, it kind of pains me that Mick Jones uh, played with him because I'm a massive Clash fan. But, yeah, I haven't found the general public song It's I like. funny on tenderness. Like, to me, the guitar definitely stands out. And then, again, I did not know Mick Jones was in it back then. You don't find out this information until many, many, many years later. Unless you look at the back of the album, but, you know, I didn't have the album. On the back of the album, they actually had the picture of the guy that uh, replaced him. Mm. So I do think on the the liner notes of the album, they might have had that Mick Jones was part of it, but they did have a different picture on the back album of the cover. Yeah, so it's tough to figure that out. Yes, very tough to figure out. So English Beat, did you like the English Beat at all? Yeah, I did. But I didn't think... I, 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 general Public was a lot softer to me. They were a lot uh, more 
uh, I think touchy feely. They're more straight on, like rock compared to poppy rock compared to. Yeah, they were pop. They were poppier. Yeah, yeah much poppier. All right, let's move on. The Replacements, Don't Tell a Soul, their second-to-last album, released in February 1st, 1989. We spoke about the expanded edition of their album, Tim, Let It Bleed, on our very first episode of Music in My Shoes. And in similar style, The Replacements released Dead Man's Pop, remixed by Matt Wallace, with additional demos, unreleased tracks, and a 1989 concert recording. I enjoy the Dead Man's Pop versions much more than I enjoy Don't Tell a Soul, the regular version. And songs like Talent Show, if you haven't listened to Talent Show, it's a really, really good song. Yeah. I I don't know how many people have listened to it. It's not something that was on the radio that was popular. You just had to hear it. It was the opening song on on the album. Uh, We'll Inherit the Earth, Asking Me Lies. The big single, I'll Be You. Aiken to be. Aiken to be. Um, the talent show demo version, I think, is far superior to any of the three versions that you can get between the two albums. Yeah. Uh, we Know the Night, it's an outtake where they have Tom Waits with them playing five songs. It is so good. It's just uh-huh. them in the studio. They release it on this um, Dead Man's Pop. And Tom Waite with that super raspy voice, it, you know, they must have given him the words to some of the songs before he got to the studio because he seems to know them. Mm-hmm. And they do a great job with it. It's just really cool. I like when you hear artists together and it sounds good as compared to sometimes people get together and you're not sure why they're together and it just doesn't make sense. Kind of like... David Bowie and Mick Jagger when they did that thing in 1985 <laughs> just didn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, but yeah, that's We Know the Night. If you get a chance, really, really good song. I have not checked that out, so I will. Um, live uh, recording, 1989, from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee that I've listened to enough replacement shows you can definitely hear them changing like when you listen to their really early live recordings they might have had a drink or two (laughs) and it's very different as you listen throughout the years how it goes on for them they definitely sound much more aware of what they're doing and wanting it to sound as good as it can possibly sound right so that's a good one there, if you get a chance to listen to that. Yeah, I always felt like the original Don't Tell a Soul was a little overproduced. Yeah, so you know, when you listen to it, and it was produced by Matt Wallace. Matt Wallace came in and did Dead Man's Pop. So he kind of went in and changed it up in, I think it was about 2019. And I think he probably said, all right, let me just think about what the replacements are and what the replacement sound is, and let's make it that way. And it's lost some of that polish. It's lost some of that change that they did to uh, Paul Westerberg's voice. Dead Man's Pop is really, really good. Mm -hmm. Really good because it just sounds like what you think they would sound like. And you can hear stuff in there that you didn't hear in the original. I don't know if he added more tracks or if they just with the mix, you know, you can kind of hear parts. that. Yeah, I think um, 
I'm trying to think, uh, is it Asking Me Lies where you really can hear the piano in it? Mm-hmm. I think it's that song where it's like, wow, I really can hear the piano in this song. And that changes the whole complexion of the song. Right. Still a really good song. So my Beatles moment for this episode is I Want to Hold Your Hand was their first number one single for the band in the U.S. And it climbed to the top on February 1st, 1964. 60 years ago. And B-side of the 45 was I Saw Her Standing There. And we talked about that a couple of episodes ago, that the Meet the Beatles album started off with um, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and the second song was I Saw Her Standing There. 60 years ago, first number one single of many more to come. That's cool. Well, that's it for episode 12 of Music in My Shoes. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at musicinmyshoes at gmail.com. I'd like to thank Jimmy Guthrie, show producer and owner of Arcade 160 Studios, located here in Atlanta, Georgia, and to Vic Thrill for our podcast music. This is Jim Boge, and I hope you learned something new or remembered something old. We'll meet again on our next episode, and until then, keep the music playing.